the old stages within governing bodies are very anti-sevens because they see it as a threat, not as the not as the positive thing it can be. Because I think if sevens brings people into rugby, who cares as long as it gets them into rugby? You know, because rugby is everything, and it, everybody loves instant gratification at the moment. Really. It's the it's the it's the way of the world and bite size. And Sevens gives you that in spades. I'm Damien McGrath, and welcome to the Hive. He's so dangerous, Freddy Krueger has nightmares about him. Hello and welcome to the Rugby Hive. I'm Dallin Stanford, and despite my South African accent, I was fortunate enough to play rugby for the United States on the Sevens World Series. And I'm Robin McDowell, a former Canadian Sevens international. Back in my playing days, I went head-to-head against Dallin in the USA. For several years, Robin has coached international sevens for various countries, including Canada and Mexico. He's massively passionate about growing the game across the Americas through his McDool rugby programs at all levels. I'm currently a commentator for World Rugby, most recently broadcasting the Rugby World Cup in Japan, as well as the amazing Sevens World Series. More than a decade later, we are teaming up to bring you insights from legendary players and coaches from around the world. All legends have a story. The Rugby Hive podcast is here to share it. Welcome to the Hive. Hello and welcome to season two of the Rugby Hive, episode 27, coming at you live and loud, brought to you by Wintergreen and Partners World Rugby Shop and Gilbert Rugby Canada. We've been busier than Edward Scissorhand giving a neck massage, and of course the complaints are flying in with those massage therapists, but a lot has happened since we dropped episode 25 and 26 of season two. We've had guests, the legendary Cecil Africa, followed by the great Moonlights, Dave and John. But before we crack into this episode, Robin, we're thrilled to see the franchise expansion of the Rugby Hive. An elite group who escaped from a maximum security stockade into the Los Angeles underground. Today, still wanted by the government. They survive as soldiers of fortune. And we add your wife to that elite group presenting Sam McDowell. Congrats, my friend. Thanks, brother. It was, uh, was a beautiful week and, and a very special weekend with all our friends and family. Uh, we're lucky with the pandemic that we were able to have our party and, and, uh, and finally get married. Well, congrats, man. It's awesome to see the photos. I know Vera and I would have joined you there. We had some rugby stuff get in the way, but it looked, looked bloody sensational. So tell us what you've been up to the last little while. It's been a while since we caught up, pal. Well, I've, I, was, I had camps in Prince Rupert, I think I shared on the last sode. Um, northern, northern BC was a lot of fun. And, uh, and then obviously camp on Vancouver Island. Then I shut it down for August. It was full wedding mode, obviously. And uh, had good friends, guys that I've played on the circuit with and just good, good rugby colleagues from across the country come in for the wedding. And we went out, uh, went out fishing on the West Coast. I think you saw some of the, the good-sized Chinooks. So we got some of our our mainlander uh, Canadian boys into some, in some, what we call Thais fish that are over 25 pounds. Uh, so we had a beautiful day on the West coast and uh, yeah, it's just been really, really family mode. Um, and uh, we're just ramping up as we get into the fall here for the launch of the MacDill Rugby Island Academy. So I already have, already have our girl Erica Kissinger from, uh, from Texas. She's already on the ground here on Vancouver Island and we got other athletes coming in from Canada. So that's, that's really our focus now. And I want to say your logo is on points with your branding. You've just released a couple of new things. Where can folks get more information? Where can they sign up? Where can they follow you, pal? MacDualRugby.ca. You can get all your, uh, your rugby t-shirts with, with salmon on them and on the prairies with, with bison on them or buffalo if you're in America. So yeah, thank you. Good, good. Can't wait. Well, we also had a busy time. Barry and I were in London for a few weeks. We got to see my sister there and meet uh, our nephew for the first time. He's one years old. He's got great rugby skills. Pretty much be a Sevens World Series standout, I think, in a few years to come. 
Uh, and then work-wise, pal, well, obviously we had a great MLR season this side and it was superb to be involved with the Eastern Conference champions, rugby ATL. And then they flew to Los Angeles and LA dominated the final. The Gilkinis, the first champions. We even had some Canadian legends involved, DTH Van Amava. They partied hard. Three days on the on the trot in Vegas. It looked like Adam Ashley Cooper and Matt Ghetto and, and, and the folks were getting out there. The Tiger King was loose. It, it looked sensational. <laughs> we need to get on, that, on that, that support staff. Exactly. Tattoos were flying as well. It was all happening. Then the Rugby Town Sevens, obviously one of our favorite events every year. And it was so great to have you coach and play last time in 2019. We had 62 games, three epic days. It was so great to be there in person finally, you know, uh, at a live event here in the U.S. $10,000 up for grabs. Samurai, who feel the 12 South African players dominated the final in the end. They had players, two Olympians, Angelo David and Taku Makata, plus three other World 7 Series players. Jevald Schumann, who's as small as a handbag, was player of the tournament. And, and a bunch of youngsters, as always featuring, like we saw in 2019, the mullet man, and then a new player on the shot, the Canadian Rocket. Tell us more. Yeah, Lucas Sheck, he's, uh, he's about as Canadian as it gets. He's from the uh, heartland of Canada, Macklin, Saskatchewan, farm boy. Now, there's a famous hockey school in Canada. It's called uh, Notre Dame, Notre Dame Hounds. And uh, he's like a third-generation hound. His three older sisters went there. His dad went there. I think his grandparents went there. And uh, anyway, I was coaching one of his older sisters a few years ago with, with our provincial team. And I spotted this kid. He was like 14. He's just like this jack little guy. You're talking about that Angelo guy. I'm like, he's going to be a rugby player. And he never touched the ball. And the next year we got him in the team. And his mom's like, I, he's not going to make the team. And I'm like, I'm the head coach. I'm like, he's going to make the team. And then she's like, yeah, he probably won't play. I'm like, he's going to play. And he got player of the tournament, scored the most tries. But uh, he's one of these guys that are, again, in North America, they're a diamond in the rough, multi-sport athlete. And they just need an opportunity. So we had a trade with the Pride uh, this this past Christmas. And he, he went around Kenwa Lloyd one-on-one uh the 15s canada sevens or sevens and 15 star and uh frankie horn took him to utah last month and he tore it up in utah and so uh, we sent him down there with uh with the north american lions and first touch of the ball well you, you sang the rest of it once he got the ball uh, it was amazing i mean to see somebody 18 years young have the confidence to go around experienced veterans um you know sometimes the moment is too big for the player not for the canadian rocket it was so fun you'd give me the spice and the scoop so i could at least sing his praises and he and he delivered he certainly delivered so that was fantastic one of many players that come through that tournament of course um, but there's opportunities coming up with uh, with more rugby on the horizon so why don't you give us a brief breakdown what are you going to be up to in the next couple of months the most exciting thing and i think i've been waiting for it uh as a player a coach and a fan but uh, the premier sevens First professional sevens league in North America kicking off uh, October 9th in Memphis, Tennessee. What a great location. Country music, cowboy boots and rugby. Uh, nothing I could ask, ask more of. And, uh, and Lucas Sheck, uh, the, the Canadian Rock will be featured there playing alongside or against Perry Baker, Carlin Isles and, and those types for and also uh, women. So they're going to have four, four women's sides and six men's sides going to be evenly distributed. It'll be streamed live on Fox Sports across the USA and TSN across Canada. So that's really exciting. And then uh, uh, actually, Lucas just called me this morning. The legend Frankie Horn just invited him to play in Portugal at a World 10s competition. So this kid is is now global. And and for me, it's just just another avenue for, for North American Canadians and American kids, you know, that aren't quite in the MLR, aren't quite in that national scope to get an opportunity to showcase. And I'm looking forward to being involved in, in both projects this fall outside of our academy. Oh, that's so great. I mean, Portugal, Tens, Frankie Horn, as you said, the Sevens here in, in the US and North America in Memphis. I uh, hope to be commentating that one and see you there. That's going to be absolutely electric. And, and so great that we have 
had the success of MLR for three to four years, and now the seven starts professionally. That's really going to have a huge impact in rugby in Canada and the US, obviously. You mentioned all the stars playing. They'll be featured probably one international legend on each side, which would be really cool uh, to see that. Pal, and then otherwise on my side, we have the Rugby World Cup qualifiers. Your country against our country here, USA, Canada, two-leg series. Hopefully, uh, we'll see how things go. I'll be commentating second leg of the of the series, which will be in Denver at Rugby Town USA, USA, Canada, to see who will represent the North American number one seed. And then the match after that is October 2nd here at the Infinity Park again. Whoever wins that will face Uruguay, and the team that loses that will face Chile. So there's still chances to qualify for those two seeds. So we'll see how things go in the next month. And then, of course, don't forget, it's going to be the Sevens World Series finally coming up. Vancouver Sevens, Edmonton Sevens in your neck of the woods. We'll have a rugby hybrid reunion. We'll get everybody out for it. It's been a long time. The last event we commented on the Sevens World Series was the Vancouver Sevens in March 2020. So it's been ages and things are finally here. So I can't wait to get back with the crew, get on the horn and uh, and get the Sevens. We'll obviously have four women's teams competing in a fast four and then uh, 12 men's teams as well going head to head. So Rob, that's going to be exciting in your neck of the woods. Yeah, I can't wait to see you. And uh, we got a special guest. The Gaz is flying in just for uh, just for the Vancouver Sevens, and she'll be actually on Vancouver Island. She's gonna bring her son to our uh, academy for the week as well. So looking forward to having the Gaz. The three of us in person will only be missing uh, Mr. Gallings, but uh, we'll catch up with them later, hopefully next year. Yeah, that'll be wonderful to see. And then, Paul, let's let's crack into episode 27 with David McGraw. I got a chance to see him recently, actually, at the Rugby Town Sevens. He brought Team Germany there. And it's just fascinating to see. I knew they would be structured. I knew they would be solid. But they really played above their expectations for the rest of the world. Really, really took note. They beat the Jetters in full play, which is obviously one of the favorite teams. They came in the defending champions from 2019. And David was saying... It's really challenging working with the German side because at least six of these teams are soldiers. The rest of them have their day jobs as well. So they train first thing in the morning, they go work a full day, and then they train again. So it's really tough for these players, but I really thought they delivered the goods. Damien was excellent, always composed, and it was really cool to see him face-to-face at a live tournament. Um, his side didn't win gold, but they finished in the top four. So they had really good practice before they launch into the Vancouver and Edmonton Sevens. We will get a chance to shout their praises there again. Uh, but Rob, tell us how you know uh, Damien and, and your thought behind getting him on the be I first met Damien obviously when he was coaching the Canadian team and and he gave me my first opportunity to coach Canada with the junior national programs and, and the pathways set up through and and not only gave me an opportunity to coach he he mentored me and he's still uh, one of my mentors he's been there I think he's coached six or seven countries he's down to earth but uh, you know he really instills a lot of confidence in his teams um, like you say he's, he's always composed but he's he's a proven winner right like I think the first tournament he took Germany to in South America they won. Uh, they helped Canada win their first tournament. Uh, he won a tournament with Samoa. Like wherever he goes, he has that confidence. And when a coach has that confidence, the players build that confidence. So uh, we'll be looking for them to, to break some hearts in, in Vancouver. And to the point, as far as his players uh, being in the military or army, call me old school, but I think in our day, we, we all had day jobs, right? And if you look at the Fijiana teams, they kind of get on with it. A lot of the you know, the tier one nations, they, they're professionals. Essentially they have, you know, they have their rugby's their job, but you know what? I used to be on the end of a shovel all summer and, 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 and work during the school year. And then I would go away and play in the world series. And we didn't, we just got on with it. So you've got a, you've got a bit of dirt under your knuckles. It, it we're, we're playing rugby, not chess. So if anything, it, you know, it's a positive for that team. And I'm definitely excited to see him back on the world series and, and bringing Germany back to Canada. So there'll be a, be a good plot there, I think on his return to, uh, to the North country. 
Yeah, it certainly will be. Can't wait to see that. Well, we want to thank everybody as always for tuning in. Our listeners have been fantastic at the Rugby Hive, brought to you by Wintergreen. I've been using their products pre-workouts, post-workouts, even just getting out of bed when the back pricks. Uh, it's for all athletes, non-athletes, regular citizens like myself. You can visit wintergreensport.com. And they're a proud partner of USA Rugby, Major League Rugby, and of course, our title partner at the Rugby Hive. And then, of course, if you haven't heard, we have a brilliant clothing line at World Rugby Shop. We're wearing the kit right now. We're sporting this stuff. There's so many brilliant items you can get for your missus, for yourself, for your family, for your loved ones, for your kids. It's it's certainly uh, splendid to see it. So click on worldrugbyshop.com and you can type in Rugby Hive in the search bar and you can get all your kit there. Then we even have a rugby ball at Gilbert Rugby Canada. Visit them at gilbertrugbycanada.com. It is sensational, designed by Robin himself. It's a passing, kicking, scoring rugby ball. It's electric, uh, and you can look like an eel with that thing in hand. And then we have Canada Biltong up for grabs. I haven't seen Canada Biltong yet. I'm foaming at the mouth. Robin, tell us more. Again, another South African popular nowhere, but uh, Paul Bennett, he, uh, he's just started this project, Canada Biltong. I've been coaching his, his, his exciting young son, Matt Bennett, and uh, I've got two packages from him now. Don't tell Karen. But uh, I, with all my fishing adventures, it's perfect. Uh, I'm, I'm a sucker for, uh, for, for Biltong and jerky. And so I recommend checking out CanadaBiltong.com. And I've been, I've been devouring it. It's a dream come true to have Biltong as a, as a sponsor. <laughs> Oh, the irony that you're the, you getting at that side, I'm not here as the, the token South African here. We also want to thank our wordsmith and journalist. You mentioned it, Karen Gasparino, the Gaz, as she's known. Uh, she's been penning some brilliant stories recently, so you can check out the rugbyhive.com and you can check out her stories there. And the legend Ben Gollings has joined us for several video episodes. His insights in the world of 7th and 15th. He'll be with us uh, soon again, and we'll get him on with a few more guests coming up. And it's superb to be featured on the Rugby Network, which is home for rugby in North America at therugbynetwork.com. Check out our socials at Rugby Hive on Twitter and Facebook, at MyRugbyHive on Instagram. And I mentioned our website, rugbyhive.com. Time now for Season 2, Episode 27 with Damien McGrath. All righty. Well, thrilled to be back recording in 2021. And uh, nobody better than the great Damien McGrath. Welcome to the Rugby Hive, Damien. A real pleasure, Robin. Good to speak to you and you, Dallin. All right. Well, how are you holding up during COVID and, and how's your lovely wife, Deb, doing? Well, I think Deb's doing okay. She's uh, she's back in the UK working. I must admit, uh, I'm finding it much harder in Germany on my own than uh, I did first time around. The the, the novelty of, of lockdown wore off a long time ago and um, there's nothing open, no shops, no bars, no restaurants, no cafes. So it's work. And then I come back and sit in this little uh, little kitchen that I'm in now and wait for the next day to happen. So it can't end soon enough, uh, this pandemic. And how has that affected the, the German team lately? I know you guys were, you had some games in the, in, in before Christmas and that was Spain, but what are the, what's a day in the life like now? We've been very lucky. We've, we've continued to train more or less, you know, right through. Um, the downside is that we've, you know, we've been all dressed up and nowhere to go. We've, we've been available to play, but nobody to really play against. And, as good as it is to train, you you train for a reason. You know, you, you need an end product, and that's been the hardest part. We trained, and it's hard to manage uh, manage the players how they how they train and what they're training for when we're just filling in time, really. But we've enjoyed it. We, it's 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 allowed us to be active, and uh, we've had a, we played Spain in a, in some successful games before Christmas. But um, apart from playing you know, games between the regions in the country, nothing else. I feel like I've been preparing for COVID for the last decade, as you know, spending uh, time with 
the Canadian prairies and training indoors with no competition because it's minus 40 and 10 feet of snow. So uh, that's kind of set me up for success, but I know what you mean. It's, 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 it's tough on the coaches, but it's definitely tough on the players too, because they're just training without, with no targets. And, and uh, I know it's been a replan and replan and replan as far as the next competition. And, and even, even the ones that we thought were in pen are still in pencil. So let's just dive back to your, your earlier playing days. Damo, how'd you get into rugby and uh, what other sports did you play growing up? Uh, I played everything. I, I came from a really sporty family. Um, I'm a, I think I'm a classic example of that jack of all trades, master of none. I, I, you know, I, I love every sport, you know, football, uh, soccer to you guys, but, you know, football is king in, in most of the world. And particularly, you know, where I grew up, everybody wanted to be a footballer. And I follow football, you know, religiously. Manchester United's my team. Uh, cricket is huge for us. My, my youngest brother, Anthony, played for England. He was a test cricketer, played one day internationals. Um, he's now the head coach of, of the English county champions, you know, the, the version of the, the cricket premierships. So he's he's forging a successful coaching career for himself. So cricket's dear to my heart. Um, if there was a ball involved, I love to play. You know, rugby was, I grew up next to, uh, I don't know if you follow the Super League, Rugby League in England, but Bradford Bulls are one of the, the big names in Super League. And, you know, I, I, I was born and brought up within a stone's throw of the stadium and spent my youngest years sneaking in through the fence to watch games, you know, back in the day and so rugby's always been a part of my life um, and I sort of uh, I, I went to a rugby school uh, an all-boys grammar school where they only played rugby union strangely enough even though all the boys me included played rugby league outside of school and um, I, I suppose rugby took over because I was better at that than everything else and uh, you know I, but like even even then you know as I was a good amateur player and and we I, there was a strong uh, local leagues where I played and I I, you know, I was always a standout performer I signed as a professional rugby league player but I soon realized that you know I was I was making up the numbers more than anything else I, you know I, I was never going to be as good as uh, as some of the great players around and I suppose that that was the first sort of push towards being a coach because it always fascinated me what made the best players the best players and why were they better than me? You know, the, it just just looking to see what it what it was they did, how they did it, and uh, you know, even though rugby was different then, we were professional uh, in in that we were paid. It, you know, it seems strange now with both codes of rugby being full time, but but back then rugby union was very much amateur. Rugby league was professional in that everybody had a job, but you were paid to play as well. And um, I think I only got a place in the team because I, I was everybody else in my team was a was a coal miner. Um, you know, from the coal fields in, in, in Northern England. And I was good at the crosswords because I, I trained to be a teacher. So I think they always picked me in the match day squad because wherever we travelled to, they could rely on me to help with the crossword on the on the bus. So whatever whatever it was that got me and I was happy to do it. But, you know, all my rugby career, all I ever think about, uh, it's memories, it's people. It's always the thing. And I, I, I can't remember any games I played, really. I can remember the things around the games and the, the laughs we had and the, the, you know, you guys played and you know what it's like. It's, it's, it's the whole experience. The game's great, but it's everything that goes with it. And, and, you know, I, I've always found rugby to, to be that whichever code it was that there's a, there's a friendship in rugby and you can go to any country in the world, any city and go to the local club and you'd be welcome with open arms. And I found that about rugby right from the start. I, I suppose that's what, what drew me in, you know, fully uh, originally, and I, I've, I've never managed to escape. 
And then listen, how did you get into that coaching role? You mentioned obviously sneaking into the, the, the grounds and then eventually they paid you to be in the grounds to play yeah. professional, but then coaching, you know, what was your first start? Do you remember the, the team you, you, yeah, I, I can. Yeah. Um, I became a teacher strangely enough because I, I'm, I'm almost pathologically shy. I, 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 I suffer great, particularly when I was younger from a lack of confidence and I, I hated having to stand up and speak. So being a teacher seemed the most ridiculous thing I could do, but also back in, and we're going back to the 1980s now when I when I uh, finished at university, it was the only way you could, if you weren't a professional footballer, you could be a full-time working sport, full-time to be a PE teacher. So I thought that was the next best thing. If I, if I wasn't going to be full-time sport, then I'll, I'll work in sport in another way in a full-time capacity. So I had a teaching background and that sort of connection with what, what is it that makes great players great or what, what is it makes the better players that little bit better than everybody else. Allied to my, you know, teaching background, um, always seemed a natural fit. And, and the club I played at uh, in, is called Batley. It was, uh, it's, it's in the championship now. And in, it's not just outside Super League, but they, as I finished playing, they offered me the chance to become player coach for the reserve team and uh, we won the reserve team league in that first season. And as much as I'd like to say it was all about me, it was, you know, it was just one of those, one of those things. We had some good older players finishing and, and things went well. And like everything, I think, in, in sport, you guys know it, it's it's not as much what you know as who you know, because if, if someone likes what they see, they recommend you, don't they? they it's it's word of mouth. You you rarely see people applying for a job. And they get it based just on their written application. It's usually someone ringing, you know, do you know anybody yet? Have you talk, Have you thought about this guy? So the head coach at Batley at the time who'd, who'd moved on was a was a coal miner called Paul Daly, one of these great natural philosophers without realising he could do that. You know, I presume you'd call him a mentor to me because he, he just always had that really um, kitchen sink um advice you know really simple stuff and he recommended me to to the uh, director of rugby at, at Leeds Rhinos um, who were probably the blue chip team in in rugby league, because he knew they were getting their uh, they were they were starting up their academy um, and the, you know the Rhinos would, would always get the pick of the, the best young players so to get that job would be a real you know it'd be a plum job so Paul recommended me to Dougie Lawton who was the head coach and he, he came along to meet me uh, and we met and he actually offered me the job as his assistant. And I said, no, I'd love to do the academy because A, it'd be a great job to have with so many great young players. But also, I was also conscious that I didn't know enough to jump in at senior level rugby and be a coach. And I think that's a lot of people fall for that too often. They, they, they aim too high before they're ready. You know, like, let their ambition and their ability get mixed up. And I, I wanted to try and learn and be successful away from the, the public eye. And it was a, it was a great decision. And, and he supported, he said, look, he said, to be honest, he said, I, I want the second best coach at the club with him being the best to work with the young kids because they're my future. He said, you know, what you do with them will, will affect my longer term and the club's longer term health. So he allowed me to do the, the academy and that was, that was great. And, and like always, when you have a, a high profile job at any level, Within that academy system, that got me to be the Great Britain Academy coach because obviously I had lots of great young players and we were being successful, uh, which got me noticed by people at the at the governing body at the Rugby Football League and you know like as I said to you, it's 
you know, you just need people to know who you are and what you're capable of. And, you know, Robin and I have had this discussion many times when he was in Canada. It's, it's having the patience and, and letting people not, you don't have to go tell people what you can do, show people what you can do. And, and I, I took that approach and that, that got me started. And then once you, once the doors open, you have to show you have the, you know, they've got what it takes to get through them. But that was a, it was a, a fortuitous start, but, you know, a, a great start for me. Yeah, and I do love the education background as well. Um, so many of the brilliant international rugby coaches come from that as well. And it's that helping the younger players come through and guiding them, you know, as people also, which is so important. So your early career as coaching as well, I know you guided the uh, Great Britain students team, right, to a gold medal at the, the World Games in Brazil. Can you reflect on that tour and, and having to deal with, you know, young kids? Obviously, you know, they weren't paid professionals and stuff like that. But uh, what was that experience like? That was a that was a strange one because um, we we had a squad organised to go and uh, obviously I, I was working full time with England rugby at the time and they, they they you know offered me this chance to take the team to Brazil uh, and recommendations came in and uh, you know we we thought we were picking a, a gun squad that that looked really good on paper but as always happens with injuries and holidays and exams. People fell away, people fell away, and we were one player short, would you believe, as we were preparing to go into camp before flying to Brazil. And Phil Llewellyn, I think, uh, Robin, you might know him, he came over and worked in Canada just recently with BC. Phil was manager, and he said, look, there's a there's a young kid at uh, Gloucester University. He's great. He said, honestly, nobody's heard of him, but he's great. He'll, he'll come in and do a job. And w- when his name came up, the guys in the university system said, oh, no, we you know, he, he's not good enough. Brother. It turned out to be uh, Rory McConaughey, who, who's now running the tries in with Bath and went to England with, uh, the last World Cup. Um, so Rory came and uh, he was green, and but he, uh, you know, smashing kids. He went on to play for England Sevens as well, obviously. But uh, Rory ended up scoring two length of the field winners in the final, uh, you know, against France to win the gold medal. And, uh, you know, he, he was, uh, it, it sticks in my mind, it just shows that, you know, there are different ways to get to the top, and and Rory's was a was a was a different one. But he, he took his opportunity when it came. But um, like anything, when you when you take over a team, you you have to find out what it is that people want. Uh, you know, I wanted to go there and win the gold medal, and I wanted to do it in the right way. But if the players were just wanting to go on a jolly and have a, a good time and a few beers and a great trip to Brazil, then you know maybe. We, you know, it, we, we might have to part ways, but I, you know, I met with the team and I said, "Look, this is what we're going to do. It's it's two weeks of our lives. We, if you know, if we do it properly, it'll be a worthwhile trip, and we can have a great time as well. But let's focus on what we have to focus on before we get there. And I suppose no different with dealing with any team, with England, with Wales, with Samoa, Germany, whoever I've worked with, Canada. You you, you set the ground rules and and the players buy in and agree. Um, you you can steer them into agreeing to anything if you can sell it in the right way. Uh, and we worked hard and, and had a great trip and just like anything and you end up you, you win and you, you come back with great memories and the, the couple of stories I have of that trip I, I couldn't repeat publicly but you know when we ever we meet we, we laugh about some some great times we had yet we came back with a with a really professional performance and a, and a gold medal oh that's phenomenal we'll, we'll get you on a couple of jars for those stories another time yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a shame all the best stories in rugby are usually ones you could never repeat publicly yeah. <laughs> Most of those go back to my club days, not even my uh, yeah. overseas days. But uh, Damo, you you've had a brilliant uh, career coaching. You're still you're still deep into it with Germany, and we've discussed for many years, but uh, definitely over the last few months. 
just want to give people perspective. And I know you've been on lots of podcasts and, and interviewed around the world, but uh, just give insights. You've had an opportunity to, to work with many countries in 15s and 7s and in your own country. And for me, like coaching, you know, obviously my, my experience in Mexico and, and France and Italy, as far as places I've lived and played, you know, to echo what you said, don't remember the games. You just remember the people, the places and the things. And, and, but uh, definitely there's different styles and you've been successful in all those countries. So just kind of curious insight. What, like, what, what's it like coaching England? What's it like coaching Wales? What's it like coaching Spaniards, Samoans, Canadians, Germany? Cause we're talking all walks of life, but uh, I'll kind of go through each country and then uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll ask you the same questions for each one. So let's start with in your, in your native country, which is England. Uh, what was your role when your role or roles when you were working with England? Uh, well, I was skills and defence coach with, with England 7s, assistant coach, but I, I, that's what I focused on. That was, a, that was a, a strange one because I found the players very, most of the players had a background in, in private school um, in England. So they were very confident young men. And I, and I mean this in a nice way. It was different from, you know, from the rugby league background I stepped out of to go into rugby originally. And I found that, you know, they challenged everything, sometimes for no reason. And, and they, not know-alls, but they, they felt they had a knowledge. And how you telling people and encouraging people, that was, that was one of the first things that I found there. That I had to, instead of being more uh, directive and, um, and not being challenged as a coach, I found that, you know, they, they, they wanted to know the why more. So I had to think about a lot more about why we, I, I knew why I was doing it, but then how to articulate that to the players so they understood. I think any any coach, the best coach, is a great salesman. They can sell what they want to do. They sell their dream, their vision. They also sell how they want to get it done. And they and people, if they if they if they buy into it, will invest in that. It's like they would invest in anything. So you have to you have to articulate what you want to do that that matches their outlook on life. So I had to think very carefully. And it took me a while. I didn't just do it. But you think about how, how do I approach this? And just as a, a, a I have a, a thing about coaching that there are three types of coach in sevens. We'll use it sevens as an example. There's adopters, the people who adopt the way of playing that they see the big names um, do. You know, they'll try and play like South Africa do or Fiji because that's the thing. And it doesn't matter what sort of players are, they'll just adopt that way. Then there are followers who follow the base. This is how sevens is played. And they'll just follow the way they've been shown how to do it. And then there are the innovators who look at the players they have and the way the game could be played and work it out to suit their players. And I, I mean that culturally as well as in terms of their talent. So I, I've always taken that approach into each country. What is it they have? And, you know, these are the ingredients. What's the best recipe that, I can get a meal out of, you know, that it'd be, it'd be pointless for me here in Germany to try and play like Fiji because everybody's five foot seven and not particularly big or, or fast. So we have to think of a way that, and, and that's not to decry the guys here because there's some really good players, but that type of game wouldn't suit them. Um, and I, you know, be Samoa was a completely different uh, kettle of fish, you know, where, Everybody had a sidestep. Everybody had a kicking game. But if there was someone to run into, they liked to run into them. So you had to find a way to work the physicality of the game to also enhance their skills. So it's how you uh, it's how you approach it. So looking at uh, let's 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 dive into Wales here. 
what was it like coaching in Wales? And uh, what was your favorite part about working with Wales? You know, bizarrely, um, that was the most foreign place I've ever worked. <laughs> uh, you, and, and you may laugh, and everybody does. North Wales, where I was based, which is uh, North Wales takes up a third of the country. So all the rugby is based in the south. And North Wales, where George North comes from, for example, is, um, is almost like a barren wasteland. But it's also predominantly Welsh-speaking. So Welsh is the first language. So a lot of the boys didn't speak English as a, as a first language. And also, like most Welsh, Scottish or Irish, they hated the English with a passion. So me being an Englishman going in to be head coach there was, was a challenge in itself. And particularly, uh, we used to call it going out into bandit country. We used to go out to the local clubs at Bethwellian, at Brofestiniog and you know, other names that I couldn't even pronounce, but uh, out into little villages where outsiders were, even in this modern age, you know, outsiders were looked at with a bit of, you know, not so sure about you. And for me to come in as an Englishman telling them, this is how we're doing things in North Wales these days, this is what we should do, was a real challenge. Um, but also Canada had a, had a big, uh, caused me a great problem in, uh, in Wales because the North Wales team was being set up as a region, uh, RGC it was called, Ruby Gogolith Comrie. And they set it up and brought, I think a dozen Canadians. Uh, I, I'm sure that, um, I don't know if Kudmore was there, but um, I know Sean White and guys like that. Jeb and Chauncey and- Yeah, Jeb and Sid, yeah. They all went over there. And so they, they used it as an exchange program and all these Canadians played in the team and the locals couldn't get in. So when I came in and said, look, the Welsh Rugby Union have decided now we're going to take this seriously, we're going to make this region, you know, we're going to push it up there to be the fifth region in Wales. They looked at me like I was some kind of, you know, we've heard it all before, not interested, and you're English, and, you know, you won't pick any of us anyway. So I had to break down those barriers and um, I had some good guys working with me. And we, we, we forged a great spirit there and, uh, you know, ended up being successful and they got into the premiership and, and had, had loads of success down the line. So that was, a, that was a, a, it was a tough one, a really tough one to, to break down. Even though like geographically for North Americans, you're from Northern England. So you weren't quite, I mean, it wasn't like you're from another planet or, you know, I, I went down and coached in Texas and for a Canadian to go down to Texas and coach, it was, it was, it's for, it was, for me, it was the most daunting thing ever. Cause I grew up watching American football movies. So here I was uh, going down and guest coaching some American football. Now rugby coaches that are ex ex Marine, like legends with stars and flags on their shirts. And, uh, and I'm just this little <laughs> coming down and definitely the last thing I ever want to do was impose myself. It was more of, you know, building a relationship and, and having to look at the lay of the land. But uh, so for us, North Americans, it's funny because you could, you know, you could drive to Wales and probably a few hours or a few days, depending on where you are in the country. Uh, it was two hours from my house to, to work. <laughs> but, I mean, I may, I may as well have flown to Samoa, which was 48 hours away. It, it, it's the UK is such a funny place. It's, it's tiny, in, you know, compared to where you guys live and, and operate. And yet you only have to go an hour before you're in, you could be in a foreign country or, or be treated as, as such because the regions and, you know, how everybody speaks is different from place to place. And there's a, a rivalry, even within England, you know, Yorkshire and Lancashire is the, the next county to us and we hate each other with a passion, but it, it's, it's, it's just one of those things. That people don't like outsiders, do they? I think that's the thing. And one of, one of the other challenges with going abroad is that, Usually you find if, if a country 
appoint an overseas coach, it's because they need them, yet they don't really want them. You know, they, they'd rather have someone of their own. And I, I've always found that a huge, that's probably of all the things I've done going abroad and working, and I, and I include Wales in that, you know, is, is overcoming that you're an outsider no matter what you do. And, and people will always want a Canadian in Canada or us. I mean, Samoa, that, that was the biggest thing about Samoa, you know, they, they needed outside help, but man, they did not want it. So it was, that was hard to overcome. And let's skip over to, to Spain. What was your role in Spain? And yeah. what was uh, culturally your favorite part of that country? So Spain was the, uh, I talked about thinking about how you, how you say things, but that was the first time I really coached in a foreign language or, or you know, to people who, who, who couldn't, some could speak English, others couldn't. And uh, I was the skills and defence coach for the Spanish National 15s team. I was a little bit of money came into the Spanish game. Uh, they were backed by Rive, which was the uh, national rail network. Uh, it was before the big financial crash in 2008-9, I think. Um, and they decided they were, they were ranked 32 in the world. They wanted to get to the top 20 and qualify for the World Cup. And we, we trained at, the, at Real Madrid's old um, training ground in the City of Football in Madrid, which was an amazing setup. Uh, I used to go over for two weeks and then go back home for a week and they'd fly me in and out. And we, we had great success in the Six Nations B. And, but I had to learn to, to coach. Again, I had to think more about what I said. Uh, a little bit different from the England thing where I had to think about the people I was speaking to. This time it was, you know, the nuances in what you say sometimes or, or the inflections you'd put on words or, or you'd assume that people understand what you were saying. But the guy who was interpreting for me was just, being verbatim, you know, just saying it word for word. And there were some hilarious mix-ups. And so I had to think about if I was going to speak, was it clear? Was it concise? And, and I spent as much time preparing what I was going to say around what I was going to do, which ended up being a huge uh, plus for me in, you know, the rest of my coaching life. Being concise, but making sure there was no room for misunderstanding. So it was... Like always, I fall into that trap of learning a few words and think I can just fall into it and then they, they answer me back and I'm finished. But I got there in the end. You know, I, I think anyway, people can uh, people will buy into anyone, no matter what how they speak or, or what language they speak, if they feel that you're giving them something that they want or need and that you value what they do. I think your manner can can put that across as much as your words as well. What, what are your takeaways with Spanish rugby? What was it like coaching the Spanish culture? Because I know for me as a player, when I went to play in Italy and I'm half Italian, everywhere I played in Canada before I, I left these, these shores, they didn't know how to deal with me because I was so crazy on the field. I was just like, a, you know, a dog when it's been locked up all day and you let it loose. That was me on the field. They didn't know where I was going or where I was, I was going to finish. And, uh, and then I went to Italy and I was the least craziest. They were all crazy and all over the field. So I was like, ah, I'm home. I'm with a bunch of other crazy dogs. So what was it like coaching the Spaniards? I suppose it should state the obvious. I was going to say the very Latin. You know, they, they, they were red-blooded and fiery, but but full of flair, exactly like you think of them playing soccer, football. You know, but we had a great kicking game, I've got to tell you. But they, they, they like to play rugby as opposed to play uh, set-piece, you know, tactical yeah, they like to make the ball do the work. And that worked for them in the situation they're in because, again, I'll go back to that followers, adopters, innovators. The head coach, Jed Glynn, was a guy who I worked with with England, England A and England and 19s, and he got the job of director of rugby or technical director, I think it was, in Spain. He brought me across. And, and he had that 
mindset, that outlook. Let's let's use the you know what we've got. It's pointless trying to take on Georgia and Romania, who were our rivals. You know, in a in a, a dog eat dog fight because there's only going to be one winner there. So we need to think about how we can use the flair and uh, speed and agility of the team we had. So that was that was uh, that was good to do. That was that was interesting. Didn't always work, but it it, it had a positive effect in the end. All right, let's uh, skip across. Probably. You're probably not allowed to say your favorite, but I would probably just get to know you. Your favorite is Samoa, location, location, location. I think if if I had an option to coach anywhere in the world, it would be in, in the South Seas. And uh, I know I know it comes with its challenges, but the people, the oh. culture, and the islands. So tell us about your Samoan experience. I'd have to say that's that's the uh, the challenge is is probably underestimating it. Um, I think when I I mean how I got the job was a strange. I, I actually saw it on Facebook. Would you believe and I had the craziest interview over a long-distance telephone call. There's a guy called Terry Sands who runs Samurai, one of the, the great invitational team. And I was doing some work for him down in Bury St. Edmunds, which is in the, the sort of southeast of, of England. I said, look, at 9 o'clock tonight, Terry, I've got a telephone interview with Samoa. He said, you can use the clubhouse office. He said, there's the phone. So at 9 o'clock, I went in. At, at 1 a.m., we finished. They, kept, they asked me a question. I'd launch into this long answer. And you know, I, you know, I can only, I can only bullshit for a small amount of time. You know, I, I can't repeat it. And I'm talking away, and then I suddenly realised there was silence because the line had dropped. I, for for about eight questions, I don't think I I got through one without them having to ring me back. It was, <laughs> I should have known then that 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 was a foretaste of things to come. It was, I got the job, and I, I was the first ever foreigner to to be uh, selected to coach. Um, it always been Samoans, <clears throat> and the Palangis are, are what they call, uh, you know, white men outsiders. So I was the first Palangian, and boy, did they let me know. And going back to that, they want, they needed me there, but they didn't want me. You know, there were a lot of people on the board of directors at Rugby's King. There, it's only a tiny place. Have you ever been? Or there's only 180,000 people living in Samoa, and on 179,000 are expert rugby people. Everybody had a, an opinion. Every shop, every restaurant, every bar, even in church. You know, I'm, I'm a Catholic. I used to go to mass on Sunday in this cathedral in Apia, and the priest had always mentioned at the end, "You know, coach, I know you're at the back there. We need to work on the breakdown this week." Everybody wanted to say something, and that was just. Um, <laughs> it was a. If you ever wonder what it's like to be in a boy band, get a head a job as the coach of Fiji or Samoa, because you cannot go anywhere without someone wanting a selfie with you. And for me, with white hair, I was the only person on the island with white hair. I couldn't blend in. I got, I just had it everywhere. But and also, <laughs> you were either a hero or you were a loser. There was no middle ground. If you won, you were fantastic. If you lost, no matter what the context, whether it was injuries, you know, if you played New Zealand, we, we played New Zealand with um, Sonny Bill and everybody in, and we didn't win. And you think, you know, we killed the firstborn baby of every Samoan. There's just no, you know, you they expected to win, which is bizarre for such a tiny place with a with no professional rugby background to bring players through. It was just people out of the villages. So it was a really, it was a really difficult thing. Not not the boys, the boys race. I, I thought, just like you, I thought, I can't wait to get there. Now there is there is some talent to work with. It's not the players, it's what comes with it that's hard to, to handle. And, and Sir Gordon. We had some great chats, me and him, you know, sharing sharing uh, things that, that, you know, was happening to him and happened to me because I, I, I was someone he could speak to about it. 
the, the interference from outside the prime minister's chairman of the board. He used to come with his security detail and sit in the gym every morning on a bike and just pedal and watch and then tell someone else to tell me that who should be in the team. And he, he thought, honestly, again, it, I was only there 18 months, but it took me about 10 beers to tell you the first two months just on its own. There was just some well, crazy. Hit, hit, me, hit, hit me with, uh, like, dive into what it was like your first few sessions and, and, and how you built the team. So Samoan uh, culture. Now, this Samoa is completely different to anywhere else. And you go there with your own Western values and, and a first world, you know, way of living. And they live a completely different life. And you've got to be careful you don't judge it as bad against your good. The high-performance unit, which was a joke, you're calling it, that was just a joke because it, it, the pitch was like uh, the fairground when the fairs left town, you know, it just pieces of glass, stones, rocks. There was a few rugby balls and a couple of torn bibs and that was it. There was no equipment, no no facilities. And the players all looked like they'd been beaten, you know, like, like a dog because... Adults are given respect, they don't earn respect, and their word is law, and they, they just, you know, it's all directed, telling the players, and they're not allowed to look adults in the eye. There's, there's, a, there's a thing about, you know, they all keep their head down. So when I went to speak to them, it looked like they were all sat with their heads down, and no one would look at me, and I tried, you know, no one would get a response, because they're not, it's not about talking back. So I had to deal with all... Not that that's wrong, that's just how, that's their life and how things are. And I had to understand that and get to know that. And then try and draw them out and get them to, because, you know, as a coach, as a player, you want two-way uh, conversations. You want them to let you know how they're thinking and do they agree, don't they agree? And by the end, when, before, I, you know, before I got sacked at the end, we, we agreed. It was, you know, we had meetings and they'd, they'd offer opinions. And, but that first thing was really, that was really hard because they, they just... They'd obviously been on a losing streak and they'd been hammered by coaches. I think two and three hour sessions were the norm. And so I was coming with a completely different approach and, a, you know, a more of a loving, you know, kissy, touchy, feely type of <laughs> person. And I, I wanted to, you know, build relationships and, and, you know, that was, that was really hard to break down. And what about, what about life on the islands? What about life uh, in paradise uh, as far as uh, the scenery? Well, you'd, have to, you'd have to ask my wife that that was her favorite time of her life. I mean, it's as close to somewhere is as close to paradise, the Garden of Eden, I think, as you get. Uh, if you've never been, I mean, Fiji, Samoa, Tonga, all uh, just beautiful places. Uh, coconuts just hanging off the trees and bananas and fresh fruit and you know, clear waters all the way around. There's a huge reef all the way around the island, so white sands be uh, just well, it's just beautiful. If you could live there without the rugby, it'd have been absolutely fantastic, but. Uh, but, you know, it was, and the people are, uh, no, I can't speak highly enough about the people, everybody laughed. And, and so I, I soon worked out if you could make them laugh and got them laughing, you could get all sorts done. That, that, you know, you, like I said, again, you don't adopt or follow, just look at what you've got and work out what you need and how you can get it. And uh, that was a thing. We, we laughed and I, just thinking about that now, I'm, I'm not thinking about the games. I'm thinking about some of the, you know, just, just them sat laughing and they'd laugh at anything. So you basically, after a Sevens World Series, let's say you didn't win the tournament, you have to come back with some new jokes, you know? Oh, <laughs> my, the joke was the trouble. We, when we played, we played in London in a, in a series, it took us a week to get home. We, we missed a flight and nobody from the Samoa Rugby Union was available on the phone. And Oh, we, you just laugh at some things. The, the, the biggest, there was a, 
there was a watershed moment in my time in Samoa. We played, we missed out on Olympic uh, in the Oceania. We got absolutely hammered by Tonga, which put me on the back foot right from the start. And then we went to Cape Town and Dubai and we won the Shield for whatever, the 12th, 13th place. You know. And then we, uh, we went to Wellington and, and Australia. And again, it was different players in each time. I was trying to find a, a combination that worked. And we finally went to uh, Los Angeles and, and Vancouver on that trip. And, and again, to go from Apia, the capital of Samoa, to, to Vegas is eight hours in a straight line. It took us two days to get there. So we had the, it's one of these ridiculous travels we had. And I could see it was we had some new players there, and it was um, it was getting everybody down. And, and we we beat Fiji in the first game, the first time Fiji had ever been beaten in pool play in three or four years, and we absolutely smashed. Them. It was fantastic. And then we went and lost the next game and lost three players with concussion. And I said, look, you know, we, we need to we need to pull ourselves together. And every time we were sat in the changing room, every other team, you guys have been around it. There's rock music blaring out and they're all playing them, you know, to get themselves up. And we had this like, it was either church music, because religion's a big thing, as you know, for the islanders, or this sort of, you know, this, um, that sort of, you know, flimsy, I'm, trying, I'm doing arm movements here, so, you know, that sort of like wavy South Pacific music and man, you could fall asleep in our chill. Chill, chill music. Oh yeah. man, even, it was, it was colder than chill. So <laughs> I got... I got the boys in my uh, in, in my in my bedroom after day one. I said, "What can we do? You know, we, we need to we need to do something here. You know, is there anything we can do?" And Alex Samoa, uh, who was um, who was living in New Zealand, he said, "Look, I'm at the Maris Club. We play this this music before we play in our local club." He said, "It's great." So I said, "Right, let's try it." And you may have heard if you've ever been around Samoans over the last few years, but this is how it all started. He brought this track in, and before the last thing before we went out on the field, they put this on and they, they had this chant, and it changed our season in an instant. We we ended up winning the plate. We beat New Zealand with Sunnyville and everybody in. And we smashed USA in Vancouver. We beat them in Singapore. We had, we had a, went on this great run, and I put it down all to this because it changed their mindset in an instant. You know when you're looking for the button to press, and you just can't find it, and there it is under your nose. It was just that. So I'm going back to that. You know they love to laugh. But they love to sing and dance. Man, they love that, and that got them ready. That once that started, wherever we did in the in the hotel, we had we had a meeting. Then they do this, and it got them all in. And it was a, uh, I'd have never have found it, but they just brought it to me, and it changed changed life immensely. What's the song? You got to tell us. We got to get. We got to find uh, it's, out. A, it's a track. I'll, I'll send. Uh, yeah. I'll we transfer it to, to you because it's a. It's a, I'll show it in the in the dressing room. But you can see the faces. What gives it will watch the faces rather than listen to the thing because they all get into it and they're all it connects them all in an instant. It, it's it's in someone some of the chance, but you get the idea and it's you know it's really upbeat. But it, the faces changed and you know I, I try and give them the pep talk before we're going out to get going and, and it, it didn't really have an effect. This got them in. You were in. You were winning. Whatever works. Whatever whatever floats their boats. I was on it. Well, you're so right. It's fascinating to hear these stories from different countries and what, you know, to get the best out of your team, you know, so that's remarkable. Um, well, let's switch across then to Canada, right? So, you know, what was that journey like for you in terms of, you know, how was rugby perceived when you got there? Again, another outsider leading, leading a country that has a rich history with rugby. Well, I think I, I fell into the same problem I came into Samoa. I, I met the team in, uh, in Florida at camp because um, my visa wasn't through. So they organized a camp in Florida so I could go there till my 
Canadian visa arrived within the next few days. My my flight got in first, so I'm sat in the airport in uh, Sarasota waiting for them to to come in to this little airport. And I could see the faces as they come through. It was half the guys retired after the disaster of not qualifying for the Olympics in Rio. And they'd had a, an even disastrous World Series. I think they had won a game for three tournaments, something ridiculous. The previous coach had had, had, and the players had, had a great relationship. And I could see the faces as they came through. You know, it was it was more, well, we have to be there. And I'm not so sure it's going to be a great idea. Who's this guy coming in? You know, who is he? What's he done? And, and Nate Riyama even told me, and he said, I had to Google you. He said, I had no idea. So I thought, you know, who is this guy coming through? And I could see the face. I thought, oh, I've been here before in Wales. I've been here before in Samoa. You know, where people are that bothered about you, and you're gonna to have to do something. So we went down the same the same route. There, we had to had to get them to buy into what we wanted to do and sell them the dream and show them some some love and you know that I valued what they did. And uh, but I, you know, everybody wants the players to trust them, but I I let the players know that I trust them implicitly right from the start. They have to do something for me to lose that trust. And so if I can give that to them, and I tried that, you know, with the Canadians straight away, and there's you know, some great guys there who, uh, you know, I still keep in touch with the, with all the Canadian boys still. And it was the start of a great journey for us. It was, um, yeah, it was. And again, I, even though we had some great times on the field, I, c- I can hardly remember any of the games, but I can remember lots of the, lots of the off-field things and the, and the things we did. So, yeah, it was good times there. And then raising the profile, you know, that must be very important too. When you're in a, obviously, if you're a country like Samoa that love rugby, that's understandable. But when you're in Spain, Canada or Germany, how do you as the head coach kind of, you know, inspire that next generation of players and kind of raise the profile of the game? That's a great question. And I think that's the, the thing that lots of the, these governing bodies struggle to do. And I don't think they do it properly. They have ready-made, particularly with the sevens, which, which can give you fantastic action clips you know it's it's perfect bite-sized rugby to sell particularly to younger people you know we tried to do it in Canada Callum Ramsey made me a great little uh, promotional video to send out you know with the hits the tries the you know the, the cups the, anything that can can sell it and for Samoa it was different because that is life there so you didn't have to sell rugby to anybody for Canada and Germany it's where where there's another two or three sports that are king then you have to think of how can I do that you know, put it out on social media is not enough because everybody does that. So use use the use the strengths you have. And even here in Germany, there are, there are four or five players who've been around for a, a long time, and there's at least two or three would would grace World Series without a shadow of a doubt and, and be you know good if not standout players. But no one else will ever have heard of them, and unless you can see them play, and we have to find a way, you know, to get them out there, get them playing, and. And sell it. We we're lucky here in Germany. We have we have a, a guarantee of free to air TV. If we could get into the World Series, we'd have it'd be on terrestrial TV at prime time. But of course, that's not. You need we have to qualify. We have to be good enough to get on there. So we need exposure in that way. But I know that that could be a game changer for rugby. Full stop in Germany. You know, imagine that. That I think the the viewing figures in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland were the biggest in the world uh, on the last 15s World Cup. Funny enough, the from the figures that came out. There's a huge appetite for rugby here because it, it it's different, but it's also exciting. And there's no preconceived ideas about it being anything but an exciting sport. So we just have to sell it better and find a way. I, Canada always, always uh, not upset me, it's the wrong word, but it, it, always, um, it always made me shake my head because 
TSN would show curling or something, you know, on four different <laughs> channels at the same time, and yet rugby was there, it was available, and it's such a fantastic sport, and some great players in Canada, across the country, and, you know, North America, it's, I think the US is, is, is maybe getting more traction with that, the MLR, I hope that really opens everyone's eyes to what's, what's available, because TV is the thing that could sell it. Well, you're so yeah. right. Just just to cut in there, Robin, about the TV, right? Um, you mentioned Germany. The same here in the US is is rugby's been behind a paywall for many years, and so if you're watching, you know, the Sevens World Series or the US national team, you don't really get to see those the, the idols and the the women's the women's team carving yeah. up or the men. Uh, but now with Major League Rugby being on two different networks on national television, people will flick the channel and will be intrigued because the perception here in the US, uh, and Robin can touch on the perception in Canada, but perception here is that wow, rugby is a crazy dangerous sport because you're not wearing any pads because they're so used to the, the football and so if they get to see that they're like wow this is really exciting i don't know what's going on but i like what i see yeah and that's why i know so many governing bodies or the 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 old stages within governing bodies are very anti-sevens because they see it as a threat not as the not as the positive thing it can be because i think if sevens brings people into rugby who cares as long as it gets them into rugby you know, because rugby is everything. And it, everybody loves instant gratification at the moment. You know, it's, the, it's, the, it's the way of the world and bite size. And, and Sevens gives you that in spades. Um, you know, Robin brought me to Vaughan Campbell from the, you know, from the Rough Riders to, to come and play. He came over to, to BC Place for the, for the World Series like there as a, as a guest of the Canadian rugby. Uh, Robin brought him over. He'd never seen rugby before, had he, apart from throwing a ball with Robin. And he was blown away. He couldn't believe it. We took him to Hong Kong, you know, which is, if you're going to sell rugby to anybody, you're on a winner there. But um, it grabs people, even if it's not their main sport. Wow, that, this is fantastic. I didn't even know this happened. And, you know, it's, I just feel we missed a trick if, if we could find it. And it's ridiculous. You have to pay sometimes to get your sport onto TV. But I would have thought somewhere a TV executive would think, wow, oh, this is, this could sell here. We could, we could use this and, be a niche sport to begin with, but then grow. But that's just my opinion. Speaking of Tavon, it's funny you talk about TV and, and visually seeing it because the first time I, I ran out of the gym to corner him because I, I was guest coaching at a football camp and I met him, but I didn't really follow football. And uh, then I did my homework on him and I was coaching at the University of Regina and he walked by and Damien and them were in Las Vegas at the time. They're coming to the Vancouver Sevens the next week. So I ran out the door and cornered him on like a Tuesday and started just spitting sevens at him and he just kind of ran away. And he's a bit faster than me. And then two days later at our next session, he was out there, but I pulled out my phone this time and I started showing him highlights of the World Series. That got his hook called Damo. But until they visually see it, and I just said to Damien and Brian, can we get him to can we get him to Vancouver next week? Because it's the only way to to sell him is is to get him in BC place. And he was he took a red eye after the Canadian, he was still in university at the time and he was competing for the track team. So he took a red eye. He was ha falling asleep half the day, but he got he got enough of the taste of it when Canada played and the stadium erupted and and Damien was bold enough to, you know, he'd never touched a rugby ball. And uh and he's he's he uh he got flown to Hong Kong and and uh and that that trip seemed to work out well for selling him on the game. But even you know, Damien, the, the thing that I really appreciate about Damien is he he got across the country. So, you know, he they they make history, they won the Singapore Sevens. He gets off a plane, he catches a ferry then or sorry, he catches a ferry, goes to St. George's on the mainland in the in the pissing rain and then comes up up to couch and coaches in the snow. Um, here's a guy that, you know, was a foreigner. 
Um, but he actually got on the ground and people across any country, they want to see their team successful. And when you talk about selling, what I know from being business, every, everything's on their phone, everything's fast, everything's quick. But at the end of the day, it comes down to that human aspect. And if you can get across the country and Damien, I don't know how many times you went to Ontario for those listeners that are not from North America. It's like a six, seven hour flight across Canada. And that's not even Eastern Canada, that's central Canada, gone to Saskatchewan at all times a year and connected. So you have to actually show up. And, and I kind of took those best practices from you mentoring me at the time and, and got in on planes across Mexico and tried to replicate that. But what was that experience like, Demo, to, to fly across Canada and, and connect with different people? You're right. I had no idea how big it was until I, until I got there. Um, it was difficult because you, you're right. You have to get out there and, and, and connect with people because you want to sell the game. As, as much as I wanted to coach the, the senior team to be successful, I also wanted to make sure that when I left, there was it was in a better shape than when I left it. And if we could get people on board with the sevens program and and see that there's a way forward, because often I'm, I'm sure it's the same anywhere in the world. You see the senior team on TV and you think I could never get there. But if you if you can go out and explain how it's possible, what you need to do, these are the things that we work on. Let them know that the the stars don't do anything different from the young. It's the same practices, the same drills, just maybe done at a little different speed and level but so you have to go out and tell them and, and connect and you know I, I, I just like to I love to do it. I do it here in Germany I, I've done it wherever I've gone I just like to get out and meet people and it was I must admit it was harder work than I, I anticipated you know flying to Ontario and then or flying out to you know to Newfoundland and, and which was like going to Samoa from from England I thought that was as far <laughs> as I could go but no, it was it was it was a it was hard work because every weekend when you we could really just sit and put your feet up, you know, you could get on a plane and go. And, but it was worth it. It was worth the effort. Always worth the effort. I loved it, and I got to meet so many great people and some a place that I'd never see ever again, you know. And uh, so that on its own was worth it. And I know you've touched on the uh, a bit about sevens, but if you look back in your career coaching, you know, all the 15s teams you have, rugby league, rugby union, and then of course sevens. What 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 appeals you to the shortened version of the game? Well, the thing that I love about sevens most of all is it's as close to rugby league, I think, as rugby union will ever get. The set piece, I, I, I've, I've learned to love the set piece in rugby union. You know, the scrum and line out is, a, it, having worked at Leicester Tigers for two years where the scrum and line out was a thing of beauty, I was told. And, you know, and the driving mall was, was, a, was one of their main attacking weapons. You know, I, I've, I've come to understand and, and love the part, that part of the game, but at times it can, it can, overcome everything and it's great for the people involved but the people watching I'm sure think you know it's not not the best game uh, you know to to sit through sevens is different because it there's always an outcome I always feel and you know the skills are on show the great tackles the great offloads the great passes great sidesteps handoffs um, you know there's some outrageous skills done under pressure at great speed so I love that I love that side of things I, I just and I find it I find it much. Uh, I'm much more curious about how I can make it better, or you know, be more innovative and, and look at things differently. So, but I just love rugby. Full stop. I, if someone, you know, if a if a team was opening an envelope somewhere, I'd turn up to watch them do it just to see if there was anything new. But I just like to watch people work and I love to watch games, and I'll never change. I hope so. 
Well, that passion comes through. And I think, you know, that, that's what separates, you know, people who are good at what they do and others, you know, who are just, just phoned it in. Let, let's talk about a couple of special moments uh, in the world of sevens and, and with you at the helm. So the, the stat is that you're one of only three people to have coached two different countries to World Series sevens titles. And of course, those were the teams that you had outside of the top tier, if you will, of world rugby. So could you touch on our two special moments in time? First, the Paris title for Samoa and then the Canadian title winning the Singapore Sevens. Now, there are two games I can remember. I can remember those vividly, funnily enough, from, from everything. I'm not surprised, but only because of, of what they meant more than anything else. That To go to Samoa first, they meant they'd been World Series champions in 2009 or 10. Uh, you know, and they had this golden generation of players and that set the stall for a small island to expect to win every game from then on. And of course, all those great players like all those islanders who went off to teams in Europe and, uh, and wherever to play. And the next group came through, fell flat. And I, I think they hadn't won a World Series title since 2011. And it was 2016 now. And... Uh, we won our first two pool games comfortably in Paris. Uh, I think we put 50 points past Wales. We, we, were, we were playing well. And the last game of the day was Fiji to, to decide who came first or second. And we got absolutely smashed. And I don't mean, you know, they outplayed us. They just walked over the top of the seat. And Ben Ryan had brought together his Olympic squad. There was all the big star names were there, all the all the beasts from, you know, from the top 14 teams in France. They had a, a, an amazing team. And they just, it really was men against boys. You know, it, I thought it was, it was touch and pass at first because we just couldn't get close to them. And they ran tries in and, you know, we were lucky to get nil. I think it was 40-something nil we were, and we were lucky to get nil, believe you me. So we went back to the hotel that night and the assistant coach blew his top which is the Samoan way, went to blame every point of finger and I was expecting a letter to come. We usually got facts from the Prime Minister saying I would let the country down. There was always some. So I got the players together and I, we had South Africa in the quarterfinals next day who we, you know, were favourites um, alongside Fiji to, to get uh, a win in that tournament. The other thing I, I've always found is, is about self-belief and how you know to make people believe that, you know, things aren't as bad as they seem. So I picked things out of the video and worked it out to show them that it wasn't because they were better than us, it was because of we'd done all these things wrong and that, you know, it's only because we did this that they scored that try. You know, and I had, I had to use a bit of poetic license, but I, I, I convinced them it was because of our mistakes, not because they were better than us. And, but, you know, tomorrow when we play South Africa, these are our, but, you know, they'll want to smash it. We can smash them. But it was all about self-belief. And, and that's all I talked to them about, you know, believe in yourself, believe in yourself. And does everybody understand? And they got the dance on before the game. And they absolutely smashed South Africa. And I mean that in a, in a you know, in actual way. The physicality, and you know how physical South Africa are, and, and that's a big part of their game, as well as being fabulously talented players. Their physicality beats a lot of teams. Samoa took them on up front and absolutely destroyed them. I mean, they absolutely bashed them as only they can when they're on that. And so we beat them and suddenly there was a, the shoulders went back. Yeah, I could see it. And, you know, we were on a roll, so I had to keep them going. Argentina next. And, and Argentina are always a hard team to play whenever because you can never shake them off. And they, they had their Rio squad there because it was that just before the, 
it was the last but one time for the Olympics, so everybody had their their main squad ready. We somehow Argentina with a two v one to score on the hooter. The guy with the ball dummied and went and ran into Falaminga Seliselli, our captain, who who's built like the side of a wall, and he cut him in half and he dropped the ball over the line and the hooter went and we won and we were in the final. But they got so carried away. I mean, you think because we got to the final, you think we'd won. It was uh, it was just joyous scenes. And Deb rang me from Samoa uh, to say, you know, oh, she said you should see it here. There's fireworks. There's, everything's going off in 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 the villages. And we we came to the final and we were twenty six nil down at halftime. Same thing happened because we I think we played our final in the semi final. And they came, some, uh, Fiji came out and did exactly the same thing to us in that first half that they did in the in the pool game. So at halftime, I'm, I'm doing it again. You know, uh, you, uh, there's a there's a thing. I'm just going around like this. You know, make your tackles, believe me. He's not as good as you. You know, I went, went around them all and they would kick off, and I could see it now. The ball bounced, and you know when you get one of those where you think it's going to bounce one way, but it, it bounced to us. One of those only rugby balls can do. We got possession and scored. And we scored again. And then suddenly this, you know, all-conquering Fiji team were, were a little bit rattled. And the boys, I could see, you could see it almost again, that we're with a chance here, that self-belief. It's an amazing thing. And they just, they, they ran in. We got a try with a, like 40 seconds to go to make it 29-26 to Samoa. Unbelievable. And then as only Fiji can do, they caught the kickoff and offloaded, offloaded all the way down the field to the corner and I think Belgium tour Tangaloa threw everything in the kitchen sink at um, Kalini Sau in the corner and he spilled the ball over the line and it went to the, did he drop it? And he, he said, yeah, he dropped it. So amazing, amazing scenes. And apparently it was, uh, you know, back in Samoa, it was like, you know, the 4th of July and everything wrapped into one. It was, a, you know, four in the morning and people were out banging pots and pans and horns. I was going. Say, were you were you promoted to... You know, president of the country for for that weekend. Well, uh, I I didn't realise, but there were moves afoot already to replace me because a couple of people in the on the board of directors were wanted to have their man in because rugby was a source of power and status in Samoa. So, you know, they wanted to have influence on the team. So they were going to give me a title, like a, a, a you know an honorary title when I got back but it all got lost in the politics of stuff but it was just enough to it, it kept me going in the job and, and the players just I mean we, we had a terrible week the following week in London because the emotional high just became a huge drop off and it was it was fantastic I was just pleased for the country because they love their rugby so much and and everything revolves around rugby and they, they often miss out on things and it was just a it was a it was a great feeling and it made life easier in the supermarket for a few weeks when I got back home you know instead of being told that you know Selly Selly's not fast enough or he's not good enough and you need to pick him everybody was uh, happy for for a while and the thing about sevens is it's so competitive that it is so tough to finish up and win a tournament and uh, and to be able to do that you know with someone I know they'd won the series but many many years ago so that was yeah. so great so switching across to Canada because Canada were in a similar boat where you know yeah. they had played really well at times but hadn't quite got through there so so let's talk about that Singapore sevens well again we were on a, a roll though then we, we we'd started the the year really well we 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 got a fourth place finish in uh, in New Zealand and um, lost a few guys for injuries in Australia, so that that you know it sort of tempered it a little bit. But 
we had a really strong home leg in Vancouver. I think we got you know, we got into the quarterfinals. We did in Las Vegas. So we we started to get quarterfinals regularly. Whereas the year before, they made no quarterfinals, and I think they finished something like two points off relegation, something ridiculous like that. They were they'd been struggling. So again. It's amazing how a little bit of success brings self-belief and it, it rolls and you have to keep it going. And we had a bit of an off time in Hong Kong, but we made the quarterfinal again. So we went to Singapore and the same thing, we, we, we cruised our first two pool games. In fact, so easily, we, Isaac K had been suspended for two matches and I didn't even replace him in the squad. I just went with 11 and brought him in for that because we were confident we were playing some really good rugby. So to decide who finishes top of the group and who finishes second, who do we have but Fiji again? And same thing, we got absolutely smashed. And I mean, again, same thing, 35s. But this was a bit different. We could not should have done so much better. We, we made breaks and dropped the ball. And, you know, it's like with Fiji, they pick it up and they, they hurt you no matter what, if you lose the ball. So everybody was a bit down. And for the first, I think it was the first and only time I really gave them a round of the houses, you know, because I felt they were so much better than that. And, you know, I expected more from them. They should expect more from themselves, blah, blah, blah. So we played New Zealand in the quarterfinal um, and we, we we beat them easily, you know, 35, something like that. We, we played some fabulous rugby and I, we blew them away, which very few teams do to New Zealand. We played England in the semi-final and, you know, they, they'd been playing well. I think they'd beaten Australia or whoever were going well in the tournament. And... We, we beat them for the first time for a long time and, and you know, was a place of great rugby under pressure. Then we had the USA in the final and uh, they were they were obviously the favourites. They were playing some great stuff. You know, Perry was running tries in for fun as he, as he always does, but they had that core of a great team with, you know, players that make them tick. And we got off to an amazing start. We were 19-0 up in, I think, you know, before people had even taken the seats, we, we just, we blew them away. But... As always, the, the great thing about sevens, we got the ball back from that kickoff as well. So we were 19 the up and we had the ball and we were starting to, and we had them on the back foot and we knocked on at a breakdown. They picked it up and Perry Baker raced away and scored. And the momentum shifted in an instant. And right at half time, they made it 19 12. And so we went at half time. They were on the front foot, we were on the back foot. So again, it's about that, you know, self belief. We have to, you know, we've done it once, we can do it again. It, it, we need to just get that. We get the ball and we always just, because with Canada, apart from Justin Douglas, we didn't have a great deal of speed. So our game was built on possession. The longer we hold it, the more chance we have of scoring and let's not fall into the track of trying to score. So we, 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 we had this in our minds. We go out, we kick off, they catch it. Perry Baker scores under the post. It's 19 on. It's only going to end one way. And they, they even, they came again and they got penalty and, there's a most amazing tackle that Harry Jones and uh, I think it's Mike Fullifoud who won, uh, one of the one of their guys. Um, he's about to score in the corner. He could have passed to Perry, who'd have walked in, goes on his own, and somehow they get underneath him just as he scores. And the referee gives held up. It's a scrum to US on the you know on our five meter, line, and we win the scrum against the head, you know, against you know against the odds, and we end up holding we end up holding the ball, and Lucas Hammond scores. And it's just about, there's a 40 some seconds to go and we have to try and get the ball back. And the referee or touch just gives a dodgy line out to us, you know, from a ricochet that I'm sure Mike keeps telling me was never, but, you know, and, uh, and again, the first thoughts at the end were for Brian Hunter, the manager, and 
Danielle and Callum, the, the physio and, and, and the analyst who, who've been there through the thick and mostly thin, and the players who, who worked so hard and never thought they could get anywhere near. It was, it was just, it was a great feeling for that alone. Just like it was, I felt it for the people of Samara, so pleased for them. I was just so pleased for those guys because, you know, for John Moonlight, it was just a culmination of all, uh, Robin, you know, and Dallin, you know, as well. All those, all those times you're on the, the back end of a beating or you push down into the bowl of a shield and you're watching the, the big guys just go on and you're just a forgotten thing. Those guys stepped out the shadows into the, into the light and, and showed that they, you know, they were worthy of being there. And so it was, it was just great to be part of that, that, that thing. And Fiji played a part in both of them, but in a, in a negative way, they just uh, kept hammering me. It was, it, they were two great times, really, really great times. It was, uh, it's definitely a fond memory for me as a, uh, as a long time, obviously supporter and alumni and, and coach it's uh, I'm always just a fan. So I'm just, I was, like you say, I was just so happy with the boys and guys like Nate that have been in the team 48, 56 years. So, um, and, uh, and then mostly for all those young kids across Canada to, to believe, you know, nothing's, everything's impossible until it happens. Right. And so that changed the culture and, and coupled with uh, obviously, you know, Vancouver sevens in a BC place now, and we got, thousands of kids watching and uh you know it's it's big things and then they'll just kind of circle back on the usa and the tv stuff like we always want the u.s to be successful now as long as they're not playing canada because you know our televisions are their their shows so you know it's if north america is successful then 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 it's that's viable for both countries and our caribbean countries too so yeah that was uh those are great memories and i'm sure the boys will love to to listen to that as well. So, um, just going forward with Germany, uh, what are your what are your goals going forward, and uh, what's how's the team doing essentially? Well, the the, the big goal for the it's an Olympic funded sport, so the uh, German Olympic Association funds the sevens program, and so qualifying for the twenty twenty four Olympics is a is the major goal. Obviously, for the players just to get onto the World Series and play a World Series game, a lot of them have been in the team for eight, nine years, you know, this would be a great chance, one last one last hurrah for them at 29, 30 years old to, to play on that world stage. Uh, and I, they are good enough to play, um, you know, at that level. There are, we won the Challenger tournament in, in Chile back in, uh, you know, a, about a year ago. We beat Japan and, uh, you know, without, you know, a full-strength team. So there is, there is a... Whilst there's a huge depth there, there is some there are some very good players, and they are they're the current European champions as well, which people forget. Um, they're a team of, I suppose it's a bit like the cars. They're a very efficient, very hardworking, very reliable bunch. And my job is to make that you know how can I take that and make it into a success, and and we're working our way a way of playing that suits that. You know we we've no no speedsters, we've no big powerful guys what we have is a bunch of you know, you know Robin how much I put on catch and pass we've got players who can catch and pass and tackle and and they can work incredibly hard and they uh, and they love a system the Germans love a system they love a love a way you know they, they, they like to buy into it you know, this is the way we're going to do it we have a little bit of free reign within that but again it's 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 getting a way that works for them and the, the talent but like, just like Canada, just like Samoa, just like everywhere, the off-field politics um, are, a, are, a, are a hamper. I suppose that, that's the world over, isn't it? It's, there's nothing, the, the president said to me um, just after Christmas, he said, I must apologise for the, uh, for the you know, political situation here. I said, man, I said, it's nothing. It's, 
it's the same every country in, in the world. There's, there's always issues off the field, but you know, the game can grow. We just we need television. Television is the answer um, to, to so much. I think um, for us, particularly in Germany, it could open the, the gates to, to sponsorship as well as um, you know to potential players. Yeah, Damon, I agree 100%. I've got a little backstory for you. So when you won that Challenger series, right, there was an English commentary version of your game. And I actually called the game from a little TV screen, well, my computer actually, in Las Vegas at the San Boyd <laughs> Stadium. After I'd commentated a Major League Rugby game, there was a window of opportunity. So I was in touch with World Rugby and they wanted English commentary because they had local Spanish voices, but nothing in English. So after my Major League Rugby game, I quickly hopped into a separate room where nobody was, pulled up my team sheets, the German names were fairly similar to Afrikaans in, you know, yeah. this is Dutch South African. Yeah. So I could at least give it a go and throw in, throw in something there. But um, it was, yeah, I remember that game clearly. And I remember commentating it. I'd never, I didn't see any of the build-up games because I was doing another game. So um, if you ever find that English commentary, I'd like to oh. see if I've got the names at least the right. <laughs> so you learn something new every day. I didn't realize that. That's awesome. Yeah. So Demo, um, you know, We've had John Tate on and a few other Andy Friend and and a few other your colleagues around the world and all great coaches, all great men and and uh, whether they're they're men or women coaches, um, you know, there's somebody at home that is is your biggest cheerleader and I know myself, uh, it's patience and support, but just an opportunity to talk about your lovely wife Deb. Had an opportunity to work with her with the junior national side. She was my manager and and obviously just uh, you know she joined you in a lot of your travel across Canada. How how vital has as as Deb been in your life and in your coaching career and uh, and you know your travel partner? You know the the saying happy happy wife happy life and uh, you know it's a truism. It, it, she she loves what I do and she loves supporting what I do. You know she she gets worked up. I, I could never sit and watch a game with her because she she lives and breathes every second of every team I'm coaching. You know every game and she she mothers the players, but she. She just enjoys meeting people, but she also keeps me grounded as well because uh, rugby's great, but it's it's the far more important things in life. And and sometimes when it gets on top of you, or you come back and you complain about things, you know she's great at bringing me back back to reality and uh, you know pointing out what really is important. But you know, it's it, when times are tough, it's great to come back to someone who understands what you're going through and and uh, can can help support you and. And like you said, she she travelled across Canada wherever she could with me, and and did the same in Samoa. You know, wherever I went, she liked to come with me. And um, you know, she's been over to Germany two or three times, but she's working in the UK at the moment, so she doesn't get to do that often. But uh, I, well, you know, without her, I, you know, it wouldn't be worth doing. So you know, it, she's too important uh, to lose. And then um, that's a great point. Happy wife, happy life. We all need, live by that as well. What, what personally motivates you from day to day? You know, um, what, what are you chasing? Well, do you know what? I'm coming towards the end of, of my career rather than the, near the beginning. And the, every day I realize there's more and more I don't know. So I love finding articles or seeing things where it sort of pricks me into thinking about things in a different way or, or looking at things in a different viewpoint. So that's, you know, learning something. I, I just love to find different ways to look at the game or to, to hear someone's different viewpoint. That's a great, one of the great things about podcasts is listening to people's take on, on the, something similar you're doing yourself or things we're all involved in, but not everybody sees it the same and everybody has a different way of doing things. And I, I, you know, I, those people that say, this is the way to do it, you have to do this. 
and they're so wrong because everybody has a different view and a different take. And I love to see everybody's different ways. Take the good things or things that I think can work and try and use it myself because we all have to stay fresh, don't we? You know, whatever the three of us do, we if we just got and did the same old, same old all the time, it, it stops being something we love. And I just love that, you know, being curious about what's possible and what, um, what could we do and where could we take it. So that keeps me going. As soon as that stops, then I'll, I'll get the feet up and the settee back in Yorkshire and uh, uh, fall asleep and relax. Well, that's great advice for all the rugby hard listeners, the coaches, the players. Um, curiosity is so important. And then, Damien, to put you on the spot here, you don't need to choose all 12, but if you could think across the players you've coached, the sevens players, who would you put in your ultimate dream team, if you will? Oh, I, I couldn't do that because, do you know, it, it not, it's not, I mean, there's star players in every team, but every player in every team's always been my favourite. You know, I, I've loved every player. So I could, the hardest thing as a coach is not being able to pick somebody, you know, who's trained hard all week or all that session and you, you can't take them because you feel that the squad's strongest. So now I don't, I, I'd pick a squad of uh, 190 or something so I could get more or less <laughs> no, everybody. That's, and no, that's fair enough. And I knew you would say something along those lines, which is great. Yeah. If you look back, are there a couple of players uh, that do stand out in the opposition that you've prepared for? And you, you know, you mentioned in the USA, you're like, well, if Perry Baker gets the ball, we know he's away. Are there a handful of players that have stood out to you over the years that you know have always been huge threats that you've prepared for? Oh, you could say that about any of the South Africans or, you know, um, uh, Fijians. I wouldn't know where to start. There are so many great Fijians out there. And, uh, but even going back to when I first started with England back in 2001, you know, um, when uh, Richard Hortner went on to be a referee, he he could get you out of your seat to watch him play. Hugo Monnier came along then. And, you know, they're just, uh, you know, Henry Paul, uh, Benny Gollins and Simon Amor, when they were pulling the strings with England, were fabulous. And uh, um, that New Zealand team of the time in the early 2000s was almost untouchable. Uh, uh, you know, the great man himself, uh, Sir Eddie and, William Ryder, oh, man. You see, once you start thinking, you could just keep trotting them out. Never mind. We haven't even got to the modern-day players who are, who are just doing some incredible things that are just out of the, out of the solar system at times. Yeah, I know. Your list could go on and on because your oh, resume yeah. is is longer than, you know, Pinocchio's nose. <laughs> yeah. Um, More so... clubs than Jack Nicholas, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, listen, Damien, I, I just want to thank you so much for your time. Your insights have just been superb, particularly talking about the different cultures, the different countries and the journey that rugby has taken you on. And I just want to say, you know, obviously all the best with Germany from Robin and thank myself. You. We will look forward to seeing you on the road. And, and in the words of John Cleese, the Germans are coming. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> and when they do, I'll see you there. <laughs> exactly. Oh, okay. good. Pleasure's all mine. It's been great to relive some good moments there. Yeah. <laughs> so many. Okay. Great day. Thanks, guys. Cheers, Appreciate it. See you back. Cheers. Bye. Cheers, buddy. Beautiful ball over the top. Yes, Sepo! Thank you for listening, you sleek sensations. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Rugby Hive Podcast and catch us on all the socials at Rugby Hive. We appreciate your support. Be safe out there and we'll see you soon. They've taken a lunch money from South Africa and are off for 